What I'm advocating for is fiscal policy where we're honest about what things cost, whether they're actually worth what they cost. And if we think they are, then finding a means by which we plan to pay for them. And I'll add that doesn't push all those costs off onto future generations that might not be getting the benefits from that spending. Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurdon, president of the Academy. And this month, we're focusing on the grand challenge to advance the nation's long-term fiscal health. Today, I'll be talking with my guest, Dr. Deborah Lucas, about issues that impact fiscal health and financial policy at the federal level. Debbie is an Academy Fellow, formerly the Chief Economist at the Congressional Budget Office, and currently the Director of the Golub Center for Finance and Policy at MIT. Debbie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You know, you've bounced around a lot around some really interesting organizations. You've worked on finance and economic policy at CBO, at the White House, on the Council of Economic Advisors, and now you're in academic research. So I'm going to ask you a grading question. I mean, if we start at the macro level and you were giving the U.S. a grade for fiscal health, what would it be? Well, um, since I'm a professor at MIT, we grade pretty hard. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to give the U.S. a gentleman's C uh, by some absolute standard. Although if I were grading on an international curve, I might raise it to a B minus. I say that because the U.S., like unfortunately most other governments around the world right now in developed countries, is, I think, not taking um, fiscal constraints very seriously. The problem with this is that I think one can go for a long time with being quite fiscally profligate, especially if you're the United States and you're relatively trusted around the world. People are happy to buy your debt. Um, But the problem is that once things do turn south, it can happen rather rapidly. And when that happens, it's not that you can fix it quickly or get out of it easily. So it isn't so much that I think we're in trouble at this moment. But my concern is that we're on a path where we're taking a great deal of risk, that we're biting off fiscally much more than we're going to be able to digest. And that's going to cause serious problems down the world, down the road. So we're sort of eating into our seed corn or, or reducing our ability to respond in case of another crisis, right? Absolutely. And even in the absence of another crisis, I'm very concerned that our fiscal policy is on an unsustainable path. And we've known this for decades. It's primarily because we have an aging population and we have programs where the costs are slated to rise. And those programs are useful and helpful to people, but we haven't paid for them. So what we have on the horizon is ever-increasing budget deficits and debt that actually, if you model it out, as we did at CEA or CBO, it's on an exploding path. And if there aren't significant cuts to spending or increases in taxes, we kind of go off into economic netherland. But of course, what can't continue never does. So at some program, at some point in the future, programs will be cut or taxes will be raised or will inflate away our debt, which has other problems in itself. 
But if we wait until the day when we've seen a crisis where interest rates have ballooned or foreigners stop buying our debt or inflation is getting to be out of control, it's going to be unfortunate. And I really want to emphasize why that is unfortunate. So there's there's two reasons. One is that it could cause an economic crisis. And that, of course, hurts everyone. And that crisis can last for a very long time, as unfortunately other parts of the world have seen. But another issue is that if we do have to make adjustments to these very important programs, those sudden adjustments, uh, if people can't prepare for them, if they don't realize they're coming, they're going to be severely hurt. You know, if you cut Medicare, you cut Social Security, you cut other kinds of important entitlement programs, um, and people have to make sudden adjustments, you're placing those adjustments on the people who are most vulnerable and most unable to have other alternatives. And so planning ahead really will be to the benefit of our most vulnerable populations. So you're sort of getting directly to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, the difference between national fiscal health or the link between national fiscal health and individual fiscal health. And that was, I think, the point you're just sort of getting to. I mean, you know, we've just added $4 trillion to the national debt to help mitigate the economic impacts of COVID. And much of that went directly to individuals through direct payments and offsets. Did it help make people better off individually? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I wouldn't say that it, well, it did make certainly some people better off. So because the benefits um, were somewhat uniform and not proportional necessarily to people's income um, before they started to receive the benefits, those with the lowest incomes were sometimes actually better off with these benefits. And that fact made some people happy and some people sad. They thought it was, some people thought that was great because it was progressive. Others thought, well, that's not really the point and that's unfair. Um, but let me put that to the side for a second and just talk about the COVID assistance and what its intent was and then turn back and relate it to um, its distributional consequences. So I think often people talk about this COVID relief in not the best way. And the typical way that you hear about it in the press is that it was meant as economic stimulus. But I think that's not right. We didn't really want to stimulate the economy. We wanted the economy to be a little bit on hold because it was too dangerous to go out and have people go shopping and go about their usual business. So I think the way economists are talking about it that makes the most sense is to say that those payments were really a form of social insurance. They were a way of tiding people over, tiding businesses over, so they could continue to make their mortgage payments, continue to make their rental payments, continue to pay for food and basic necessities and healthcare and health insurance. And then from the firm level, it was a way of keeping firms that we thought would be viable after the crisis has passed from falling apart. So we didn't lose all the human capital and organizational capital that's in a firm kind of holding things together. So again, I want to think about what those programs were intended to be was primarily to be insurance rather than stimulus. But not only do I not think that they're stimulus, I also don't think that they were intended really to be redistributional. Um, we can have redistributional goals and there's a lot of discussion these days about what fiscal policies we should have in that direction. 
But I do think it's wrong to conflate what we were doing in response to an emergency to try to ensure against the disruption. We shouldn't confuse that with um, whether we made poor people better or worse off. I mean, you know, I think it had effects in that direction, um, but I wouldn't want to link those two things together necessarily. Well, that's a really important point. And I think it links back to what you were saying really in the first question about sort of our, our grade about fiscal health, because you made a distinction between budgeting and debt and fiscal policy. Do you think that we kind of did this COVID relief because we had to, but what are the policy impacts and the longer term strategy? And more importantly, now we've created $4 trillion in debt. What happens the next time we need to make that kind of um, social insurance payment, to use your words. Right. Well, that's the $4 trillion question. So um, <laughs> I, I think that's exactly the right question, which is, well, there's, there's several questions, but one question is, should we have done what we did? And I think we should have done quite a bit. And that this idea of providing continuity and insurance um, was a good idea. I'm much more in favor of the first round of legislation than the second. I think by the time um, we added the second half, roughly, of that assistance, we already could see the end in sight. And it was time to start thinking about, well, is it really appropriate to continue all of this to spend this much more money? Because again, this is not just the emergency assistance, but it's on top of these structural deficits that go on as far as the eye can see. The question then is, you know, you said, well, are what, are we going to be able to do this again? Are we going to have to do this again? Or should we do this again? And I think the question is, will we be able to do this again? Because certainly we're going to have more crises. We always have another crisis. And we have a lot less dry powder left than we did before this crisis, four trillion to use your number. And, you know, there's a question of how often we can really do this. I mean, again, I, I'm always thinking internationally and, you know, we've had this great privilege of having the ability to borrow in international capital markets. About half of our debt is owned by foreigners. And, you know, we have these low interest rates because a lot of people are willing to buy our debt. But other countries that aren't considered as stable and reliable couldn't borrow their way through the crisis and they weren't able to shelter their people the way we were. Um, but the more debt we have, the more likely it is that next time we wish that we could borrow that money, um, the harder it might be to do so, or it might not even be possible. And so, you know, it's not, a, it's not a foregone thing that we can always borrow our way through every crisis. Not every country can do that. And so I think that's the compelling reason to be more modest in what we do. And you know, it's why I think that we should have done less in that second round. And we sh certainly shouldn't create the expectation that every time um, there's a problem um, to the economy that we are going to do some kind of a bailout. And in a way, we've, we've kind of gotten into this cycle I think of bailouts being more frequent. So um, if you remember the 2008 Great Recession and the fact that we had this financial crisis that had repercussions for the real economy and the result of all of that was a lot of fiscal spending 
as well as monetary stimulus. Well, actually, a lot of what was pulled out for these COVID relief programs were borrowed from that playbook of 2008. And in both cases, it turned out to be quite satisfactory in the sense that there was a reasonably fast recovery. People had some social insurance from the programs that were enacted and so forth. But I think it was kind of dangerous to create the expectation that every time um, there's some kind of a disruption, the government is really going to be able to smooth it over to a large extent. Well, it sounds like if I could draw a parallel you know, to climate change, where the, the climate itself is getting more volatile and you can't predict exactly what's going to happen next, are you suggesting that the financial state of either the U.S. or sort of the global financial economy is, is getting more volatile and we can't predict? And, and I think your term about getting out of the bailout habit Um, you know, how does that play out in this kind of uh, space? Well, I'll say I'm very glad that you brought up climate change, because I think that's one of the few places where I can offer an optimistic note. And that is that these fiscal imbalances can be addressed, and governments can be aggressive, but they have to pay for it. And the way to pay for it is with taxes. And, you know, we don't like the T word in the United States, but we have to think about it. And economists almost universally agree that the most efficient way to address climate change is to impose a carbon tax. And, you know, we have these budget deficits. We need additional source of tax revenue. And it's always true that the best taxes are what you might call sin taxes. You tax cigarettes to get people to stop smoking, you tax carbon to get people to stop emitting so much carbon. And so I do, I am actually hoping that we and other countries do come to the conclusion that we do need additional revenue and that we also need to seriously address the issue of climate change so that we don't have, as you mentioned, the kind of volatility and even worse outcomes that could come out as a result of that. And so um, perhaps we'll be able to take an approach that helps with our fiscal deficits and also is salutary with respect to climate. I want to follow up on a sort of a piece I heard at the beginning of that answer, which was governments can take aggressive action and address social issues, climate issues, other sorts of things. If they're thinking about sort of the return on that investment and finding the pay-fors, so to, uh, you know, in Congress's terms, uh, I want to think about that a little bit in terms of um, kind of the the job market right now. Um, The U.S. has, I'll just say, in my opinion, underinvested in the workforce model, the national workforce strategy in the country. And we just got the August job report that said there are 10 million openings and only 8.4 million unemployed folks in America, which, of course, is still way higher than it was before the, uh, the pandemic. But with that kind of market imbalance, way more jobs than people who are on the unemployed rolls, the unemployment insurance program has ended in September. The nationwide eviction moratorium has expired and millions of people might lose their homes because of this delinquent rent and mortgage payments. So it sounds like our macro systems are really sticky. They are not perfectly efficient as, as economists would like to model them, right? 
how should we think about the government's investment in the labor market or in sort of balancing out um, some of these kinds of policy situations? Are, are there things we should be doing now to make the markets more efficient? Well, I'll quibble with you and say that I don't think the markets are particularly inefficient. Um, I think, obviously, you can't tackle labor markets on a national basis because they're extremely local. So you always have an ebb and flow of job openings and people who are available and appropriate to take a particular position in any locality. So the kind of the gross number of how many unemployed people there are relative to the number of job openings is not very telling about what's possible. Um, you know, in some areas you have a large demand for labor, but maybe you don't have, you have a lot of people who have left. In other areas you have people who are unemployed, but the jobs really aren't there. And I just don't think that that's an appropriate role. But this is a personal opinion. I mean, you know, different people have different views on it, but I don't um, think that it's cost effective for the federal government to be involved in a very macro way on that sort of thing. I mean, there's, you know, there's things that governments can do to be more or less supportive of job formation. They can, um, they can provide tax credits if they want to get businesses to locate in certain areas, maybe where the population is more impoverished. Um, at, at a more fundable mental level, um, there's arguments to be made for creating a stronger workforce by improving educational outcomes, improving early childhood education. So I'm not disputing that there's all kinds of things that the federal government can do that in the long run might create a better workforce. But in terms of just the kind of frictions of recovering from a point in time where a lot of jobs went away or um, a lot of people decided they didn't want to work in the job that they had, that kind of getting things back started again is complicated. It involves a lot of individual decisions, a lot of firm decisions. All of that takes time. There's no way the federal government can snap their fingers and make things happen a lot faster. All fair points. Um, and so sticky and efficient. Um, <laughs> it does, we, we do have folks that, that are looking for those positions. So if we could make that model all work more smoothly, I think it'd be great. But we'll, let's take on an issue where there's probably a little bit clearer um, role for government. You know, Congress is about to talk about trillions more in spending as it thinks about new plans to, to invest in infrastructure. And, and we talk about investment in infrastructure, not just spending on infrastructure. And I think the American Society of Civil Engineers says that we need somewhere between 600 and 800 billion dollars a year every year to sustain to, to build and sustain um, adequate infrastructure. How should all of our levels of government then think about infrastructure investment? Is that different from thinking about investments in the labor market, so to speak, or, or are they similar? And, and how should we think about financing them? Well, those are all great questions. And um, infrastructure is something that I've actually thought about a lot and worked on um, in terms of how it should be budgeted for, how, to think, how government should think about it. Um, so I think that infrastructure is important for governments to be involved in because of something that economists call externalities, which is there's things that are very valuable to society, but it's really hard to get 
individuals to pay for it. So you have to kind of figure out what those things are, capture those externalities and fund it via public investment. That said, there's a lot of things that are in the infrastructure space that really could be done by the private sector. And it's not clear that you know, the government is is the right um, entity to do it. It's also often not clear that it should be the federal government that's making infrastructure decisions rather than state or local governments where the infrastructure is located. But the general principle for investing in infrastructure is one has to ask, is the value created by this infrastructure investment greater than the cost to taxpayers of, of making these investments? and I firmly believe that a big problem is that policymakers don't really have the tools to make those kinds of trade-offs. So I just want to put in a plug for something that we're doing here at the Golub Center, which is trying to create the um, tools um, and education for policymakers to help them think about things like infrastructure and making those decisions in a more rational way. Um, But to get back to the kind of the federal issue of the big infrastructure bill, the reason this is all relevant is there's a real worry that when you try to figure out $3 trillion of money to put to infrastructure um, all at once in one bill, I can see the political reason to do that because you need to get it passed. And if you did it in small pieces, it might never happen. But still, when you do it in that one big piece, You're not stopping and pausing and really asking, is this cost effective? Do we need this? And then with infrastructure, there's been a a problem always of defining what it really means. And as you know, what people want to call infrastructure has broadened quite a bit. So, I mean, you just mentioned about relating infrastructure, which we traditionally thought about as roads and bridges and airports and the like, to things like childhood education or the labor market. And, and of course, um, one can define it as one wants, but it's hard to get agreement um, that exactly the same principles or the same role of government is appropriate in all of those cases. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of challenges in all of this. Um, I think in terms of the financing, which is, I guess, what you also asked about, I mean, financing everything the government does comes down to exactly the same thing. It doesn't matter whether it's infrastructure or jobs programs or welfare programs or anything else. The government needs to find sources of revenue and then they're going to take that money and spend it on something. And so there's in in the world of infrastructure, there's this idea that there's somehow this idea of public-private partnership and maybe that will get people um, the money that we need somehow more cheaply. That I'm afraid is a fundamental fallacy. So that in the world of public-private partnerships, has there's some good things about public-private partnerships. I mean, the idea of it is that you want to harness the advantages of the private sector in investment projects, the expertise, um, and so forth. But on the financing side, there's really no particular advantage of raising the money in one place or the other. I mean, if you think about just the whole logistics of issuing debt, certainly the federal government is very efficient at issuing treasury securities. You know, they do that in large quantities, um, lots of buyers and all that. So the, the private sector has no particular advantage over the federal government 
in just obtaining funds. And then in terms of the cost of funds, something very fundamental that I've been arguing for decades is the right way to think about the cost of capital for the government is that as a first approximation, it's the same as the cost for the private sector, and it really reflects the risk of what you're investing in. So the cost of capital for building an oil refinery is the same cost of capital, whether the government owns the oil refinery or whether a private company owns the oil refinery. There's basically risks associated with oil refineries, and those have a cost, and those are reflected in the cost of capital. So the idea that a public-private partnership is going to lower your cost of financing is really not a very sensible sort of idea. But I am enthusiastic about bringing in the private sector and trying to get efficiencies in terms of um, the incentives that private companies have to um, build at lower cost more efficiently and so forth when that makes sense. That's a really helpful distinction between what it costs the government to to finance versus what it costs the, the private sector to finance. So tell us about those tools that the Golub Center is working to help policymakers have better insights into the financial implications of their decisions. Great. Thanks for that opportunity to talk about that. The field of finance has really advanced massively in the last 50 years. And those advances have been of great help to the private sector in making good investment decisions, making investment decisions where the resources invested produce value that's greater than the resources, the resource cost. And um, I think I've been in a business school for the better part of my career and have been teaching students that learn those tools and they take them to the private sector. And as I said, the private sector makes these pretty good on average investment decisions. But then when I go and work in the government, when I was at CBO at CEA, I saw that the government is, in fact, the largest financial institution. It's making the biggest investment decisions. It's making um, the majority of credit decisions through things like its student loan programs or its mortgage markets and everything else. And yet those kind of principles for evaluating financial investments are not necessarily being used in the same way by government. And and also, not only do government employees generally not go to business schools because the tuition is so high that it's really not, (laughs) doesn't make sense to go to a low-paying government job and pay the tuition at business school, but when you go to a public policy school, you do cost-benefit analysis, but you don't really deal with the price of risk per se and the insights of modern finance. So um, what we're trying to do is bridge that gap by bringing the insights of modern finance to policymakers by creating curriculum where the examples are taken from public policy challenges rather than from the private sector to make that material relevant to students. And um, at least in the case of infrastructure, we're actually about to publish a, a class that will teach some of these principles in the context of infrastructure investment, and that will be available for free online, but it's not up yet. I was going to offer to provide the link to it. (laughs) I'll send it to you when we have it. Oh, that would be awesome. And we'll definitely share that out. Um, So Deb, just as we wrap up, because you've laid out a lot of things for us to think about in terms of how we're thinking about federal debt and investment and value and cost to borrow. And you gave us a C at the beginning. What would we have to do to get a B in the, in the 
federal fiscal health class? Um, I would be happy to just see a recognition that we have to be serious about projecting debt and deficits, not treating them as sustainable and saying this is concretely our plan for what we're going to do to pay for what we're spending. So I know that a lot of what I've said sounds like I'm advocating for smaller government, but that isn't necessarily the case. What I'm advocating for is fiscal policy where we're honest about what things cost, whether they're actually worth what they cost. And if we think they are, then finding a means by which we plan to pay for them. And I'll add that does we push all those costs off onto future generations that might not be getting the benefits from that spending. Well, Dr. Debbie Lucas, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. And we'll look forward to sharing your tools when they're available. But for now, thank you for your insights. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk with you. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new podcast from the Academy. We'll be talking to Academy fellows each week about the challenges facing public administrators at every level of government as we try to make government work and work for all. Thanks for listening.